0: you're listening to world building for masochists
1: and we're wondering why we do this to ourselves because don't you want to have an excuse to make your own wiki
2: i'm andrea stewart
0: i'm marshall ryan Maresca.
2: i'm rowena miller and this is episode 25 rebel scum and the evil empire Welcome listeners. Welcome back. We are so excited this week to um, be presenting a fantastic guest author for you. Andrea Stewart is with us to talk about rebellions and empires and all kinds of big, awesome world building stuff. Andrea, can you introduce yourself? Um, Sure. So I'm a science fiction and fantasy
1: author. I write a lot of short stories, but uh, most recently I have uh, my debut epic fantasy novel coming out in uh, September, uh, and it's the first in the Drowning Empire trilogy. It's called The Bone Shard Daughter. It's set on an archipelago of many islands where each every citizen has to donate a shard of their skull to the empire, and these shards power monstrous constructs that enforce law and order, but the emperor's rule is failing. So it's actually in an Asian-inspired setting, and I've been telling people it's kind of where these people these characters are just trying their very
2: best in a broken world
0: it's really cool it's really that fun sounds I amazing
2: really it. <laughs> sounds amazing and as we say in this podcast we love an archipelago so oh yeah <laughs> we love an archipelago <laughs> we love an archipelago so i i cannot wait to read it i am jealous that marshall apparently already has um. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there's such a rare thing actually that I get like somebody's book ahead of time to read A, that I actually manage to read it when I do because I'm so bad about that sort of thing but then that I actually get one ahead of time it's rare and I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it a lot oh, thank and you, you will too listeners <laughs> yes and, and remind I us when that is it.
2: coming out Andrea? Uh, September 8 okay so you have time to build up to it listeners anticipate, pre-order salivate
0: get your pre-order on because you know we we need that we all love it you've got a book coming soon don't you Rowena
2: yes I think by the time this airs it will have just come out because it's out May 19th so that's in the past now I assume listeners but yeah so that's an exciting weird time for all of us having books coming out in the Hellscape that is 2020. But you know, I'm just glad that that we're providing some reading material to help get you through this. We hope.
0: So both of your books are kind of about empires that get rebelled against. And and that's, true. that's what we're here to talk about today.
2: I know it's so. kind of fun because we have we have Andrea's Drowned Empire and I have an unraveled kingdom, and it's just <laughs> It sounds like a mess is what it sounds like, but often messes make fantastic stories, so
1: <laughs> and, and all I think empires I th- do seem to fail after a while, so <laughs> they
2: do.
0: <laughs> it's it's kind of the nature of the Empire to, to build up and then fall down because there's something untenable about trying to control too much at once.
2: Yes. I think my favorite is the Roman Empire. And like they actually tried splitting. Like well, we're too big, so we'll just we'll just go east and west. And that, I mean, that didn't that didn't really. You know, this for the west didn't really work out well, and eventually it didn't work out for the east either. So you know, there's strategy that failed. But it does seem like fantasy really does love an empire, though. And is it is it because it provides that catalyst for a big story? Is that is that why fantasy loves an empire?
1: Well, I think. As soon as you have something like that that's so large and can be oppressive, then you have a good story where you can have kind of the underdogs coming in and saying, like, how do we dismantle this? How do we take this apart or make it fall apart faster? And I think that is a really good way to start a story and really kind of interesting um, kind of from the perspective of uh, the structure of the Empire, like, it's a really interesting place to um, start a story, especially because I think people do like to follow the underdog, and they do like to see how they can
2: go up against something that is so powerful. Well, I think that speaks to us in our personal lives often, doesn't it? Like, Oh, yes. (laughs) that, you know, I, I don't care where you are here in the year of our Lord 2020, but it, you know, it can often feel that the odds are against you, that that the systems that we live with, whether those are comfortable or oppressive systems are still a lot bigger than us. So I think that there's something about that empire versus the underdog that that speaks to something that we want to see fulfilled.
0: Yes. and uh But also, since so much of what, you know, fantasy is, is I mean the traditional term is epic fantasy and there to some degree there is nothing more epic than the big sprawling empire be them you know malevolent or benevolent that just the idea that there is something of such grand scope and scale going on in the world helps pull everything together in a in an interesting way I think and then Trying to destroy it is also fun in an interesting way, which is a great world building (laughs) challenge to do because it's basically you're like you're setting up, you're setting up all your dominoes with the express purpose of knocking them down. And that's half the fun.
1: It's definitely a lot of fun. It can get very complicated.
2: (laughs) Well, it can, you know, because I feel like you end up with that. That question of, you know, if you're doing consistent internal world building, you have to make your empire strong enough and big enough that it it is a legitimate force and a legitimate power but also has cracks that can be exploited by your underdog protagonists and there's a weird balancing act there of not making it too like you know just sex machina that the author just kind of came in and set up a house of cards that right. it can't feel like a house of cards it has to feel like a real strong empire that we can believe is controlling I, you know, X percent of the world or whatever. And I think if you look at history,
1: um, the dissolution of empires is never really a very neat thing. It seems to take some time and it gets very, very messy and very complicated.
0: Rebellions and revolutions rarely are about like bringing peace and order to the world and more often about <laughs> creating a new empire that with different people in charge.
2: So what when we talk about empire, what kinds of empire do we mean? Like what kinds of empire can show up in a second world fantasy?
1: I think most of the time you see the kind of empire where um, there's an emperor who is basically the all-powerful person and um, they've kind of been taking over uh, other peoples and other lands. I think that's what I see the most often in fantasy. Yeah, that that
2: land grab expansion thing often feels like a a hallmark of empire. That it's it's about the, it's like the, the constant growing, like this big amorphous like <laughs> amoeba taking on more and more territory. Often feels like like a trademark.
0: Well, that's what separates an empire from you know a kingdom or a country. That they have the central area that is you know the heart of whatever the empire is and then these all these other areas that are technically other nations that they have control over one way or another and it's about that maintaining control over other people is what makes them an empire
2: and i think it's interesting because you can get into the question of exactly how are they exacting control is it an actual, you know, are there people in residence enforcing the laws of your homeland, heartland, kind of whatever, into a new place? Is it a tribute situation where people have to send in tribute? Is it um, mostly just like a extracting your resources kind of situation? I think that there's there's some different flavors of empire that you can get into depending on how much of it is about um, just exacting um, more... Resources and money from space and how much of it is about spreading culture um, and how much of it is about um, Some kind, you know, you can have a lot of variation in terms of what the driving Goal behind
1: spread is like what created the Empire in the first place. Was it because the Heart of the Empire decided that they needed to get more resources or was it because they decided they needed to colonize other lands? And they needed to spread their culture like what are the reasons behind it? I think is kind of really important into determining uh, what kind of empire you have.
0: Yeah, like in *Trader Baroo Cormorant* by Seth Dickinson. I mean, he's got this empire that goes over. Their their main goal is we're going to take you over because all y'all are just not living right, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna set you straight. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it is this horrific oppressive empire, and they. The main character comes from an island that the empire shows up, and then the emperor is like, "Oh yeah, we're just here to help you out. We're gonna make schools. We're gonna, you know, inc- improve your infrastructure and all that. Oh, and your like your polyamorous marriage—that's bad. And we're gonna break that up and send you to reeducation camps. Like it's and it's. I mean, it's a horrific empire, and but it's really well done. And it's a book I highly recommend. I have not yet read the second book of that series yet. I need to. I need to get to that. But it's." It, I was about to say it's a fun one, but it's kind, it's kind of not fun. It's kind of harrowing <laughs> and, and soul scraping, but like in a, in a fun way. <laughs> it's a really good book. I highly recommend.
1: I think that's an interesting thing that you pointed out too, is that sometimes the Empire can have uh, can say they have altruistic motives. So they may say that they are doing this for the good of the people that they are actually oppressing. Um, sometimes I think that that's a little bit uh, more overtly selfish but I do think that most people like to think that they are like the heroes of the story in some way (laughs) so they want to put like a good sheen on it and say you know what we're doing a good thing here this is why we're doing it and it's really going to benefit these people.
2: Yeah I mean like you read um, Kipling's um, White Man's Burden now and it's horrifying it's like exactly what we would say in is just is everything wrong with colonialism and empire but you can tell a lot of people really believed in it at the time like yes because we have this elevated position in air quotes this elevated position over these poor people that we want to help we have to do it and i think that i mean when you're writing fantasy you can kind of play with a lot of that stuff in terms of what do people believe and what is their motivation And people can earnestly believe stuff that is just bonkers wrong, but they act on it because they really believe in it. I think that there
1: is definitely a role for uh, propaganda in kind of controlling people and making them believe that what they are doing is right. And we are the
2: heroes in the situation. Yeah. I mean, even a lot of the language that, you know, you look back at um, like the British empire in the 19th century and just the language surrounding how we talk about the empire and how we talk about queen victoria and i mean it's it's very propaganda ish because you just associate all kinds of glorious beautiful wonderful words with this that that gloss over you know like reality what was really happening in these places that were being colonized
0: i was just thinking there's been that meme that's been going around recently of of You know, the British in their own history books, the British in everybody else's history books. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, a lot of what you have to say in terms of like what you're building with the Empire is what what they believe and why they believe they're doing what they're doing. Is it just, and how they then maintain their control? Like, is it a thing where they have like soldiers and colonizers or is it simply more a situation of trade where they're, you know, I mean, the Aztec Empire was mostly them going from village to village and being like, it's a real nice village you got here. It'd be a a real shame (laughs) something happened to it. But instead, if you wanted to trade with us, that that would be much cooler.
1: (laughs) I do think that between real world empires and fantasy empire is oftentimes the fantasy empire control is maintained uh, through magical means. So, um, mm. yeah, I mean, that's obviously it, I've done that in my book, um, but, <laughs> which is fun. It, it makes it even more difficult, right? Like, why just have armies when you can have magical armies, right? I mean, why would you really? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and in fantasy world building, that is that's a whole new avenue that you get to open up in terms of why, you know, how the empire works and how the. The nitty-gritty of the infrastructure works is if magic is a tool they can use i mean one of the things that i found really neat in in your book andrea was the idea that like the ad- administrative aspect of it was i mean there was the emperor and then there was all of his magical constructs and magical army and it's like he didn't actually have any other people around him it was just the magical stuff he controlled and I thought that was really neat it's like I don't need more infrastructure I've got magic that's all I need
1: and then he could justify it by saying oh well you don't actually have to be you know in this army over here you can just donate a shard of your skull it's it's fine might cost you some of your life force but Isn't that better?
0: It's not better than actually having to go and fight the war yourself, <laughs> don't you think? Don't you think?
2: Well, I think it does get into really good questions about how does magic fit into your world. You know, if you have, if you have an empire. Obvious, I mean, I think it's it's hard to not have a situation in which an empire is is not attempting to control as large of a share of the magic as possible, right? So it it kind of makes things even more of an uphill battle for an underdog protagonist. If you have an empire that's also controlling whatever magical capabilities there are um, available to people. Um, I think that Melissa Caruso's books do this really well with, um, she has people with magical ability are like basically like drafted into service for the empire. Like you don't really have a choice. Um, And I think there's a lot of room to play with that kind of thing.
0: So then uh, I think the key thing is once you've once you've created your empire, you're going to want to destroy it <laughs> over the course of your story because why else make an empire unless you're gonna have a plucky band of rebels come in and tear it down so like what's how, how does the rebellion work why are why do we why do we take for granted that that's the the common narrative that the empire gets torn down by rebellion as opposed to just falling, imploding on itself out of corruption like that usually happens in the case of any (laughs) empire (laughs) besides the fact that that's less of an interesting of a a narrative story
1: well i think as soon as you have this big powerful entity people are going to get dissatisfied even if they have a narrative of saying oh we're actually helping or oh isn't this better when people don't have a choice in that matter i think that it's definitely fertile grounds for some sort of rebellion to form.
2: And I think that the question, too, of, you know, what factors are leading people to decide now? Now is the time that we're going to do it. You know, was it, a, you know, a greater injustice coming out of the top? Is that what's kind of finally cracking people and pushing them over the edge? Or can you have elements of that outside um, pressure, either the corruption of the empire itself or just the overextension of the empire itself, showing its cracks and people saying, okay, now we can take advantage of this. Or even external pressures that, you know, that the people can kind of look and say, okay, well, this war that we've been having with our neighbors has really taken a whole lot out of the evil empire. Now is our time that we can probably make something happen or we can pressure for something.
0: Yeah. In the case of, say, Trader Baru, I mean, she's a character who grows up, you know, from one of these islands that has been, taken over by, by the empire and she's been raised in their education system, but because she saw the horrors and saw the direct effect of how it had on her family early on makes this decision of like, okay, I am going to infiltrate all this. I'm going to be the best I can be within the system of the empire. So I can raise up in the ranks and destroy it from the inside. Like that's, (laughs) that's her, that's her entire goal over the course of the first book. And I mean, it becomes just this very personal journey for her, so while she does gain allies over the course of the book, that's like it's less about like forming a rebellion and more about just being the rebellion personally. And I think that's at least part of it, is how how do your rebels find each other? What's that what's that impetus that helps them come together one way or other? Like do you have a charismatic rebellious leader or is it just a matter of people sort of congregating together and being like, this sucks. Doesn't this suck? I think this (laughs) sucks. Let's make this not suck.
2: Well, I think that's a really good question because communication has to be some element of a rebellion, right? Like either you've got like some kind of like whisper network word of mouth thing happening. What I think is really interesting is that once you get into kind of the 18th century age of rebellion, like publication is a huge part of fueling revolutionary rhetoric and kind of uniting people behind some common ideas like you have both the American revolution and French revolution. People are putting out treatises and pamphlets and these are widely circulated and it's kind of creating a rhetoric of revolution to kind of get people to all get on board with the same ideas. Whereas you might've had more disparate concepts of what do we want? When do we want it? It would kind of be like, ah, we all want different stuff. Oh, but we all read the same book. So we can say, what do we want? You know? Right, and I think especially if you have
1: an empire that is spying on its own people, you have to have some kind of form of communication between the rebels that's going to allow them to
2: knock it caught. Yes, and probably also there another opportunity for interesting magical systems in your world, if that is something that you are interested in pursuing. How do people communicate and unite and come together if they're trying not to get caught, if they're trying to do this underground. Well, I know in some cases, like,
1: you know, I'm thinking Star Wars, right? Where they have like their hidden rebel base <laughs> that they can go to. And, you know, that the Empire is always trying to figure out where it is, but it's kind of like their home base where they can plan and figure things out without worrying about being overheard.
2: Right. And I think that, Like, you can have fun with those kinds of settings, I think, in fantasy. And you can also have fun with the, like, in my book, you know, I had kind of an urban setting where, you know, you don't know necessarily who all the people are who are invested in this rebellion. And I have, like, it's a throwaway line, but at one point I say, like, oh, yeah, the guy who prints our pamphlets, he's an anarchist and he's got a printing press in his shed. So it's kind of like, you know, you can have these, like, little pockets of discontent just existing among the setting. Um, that all of your ordinary people are kind of going about their day, but they don't really know necessarily who, who's hiding a stash of weapons under their floorboard or a printing press in their shed or illegal magical implements in their attic or whatever. Right. So who is in your plucky rebel band? Like, who do you need in a plucky rebel band? What's the <laughs> cast of characters necessary to foment fantasy revolution?
1: Well, I think usually you want to have somebody who is uh, charismatic and can kind of delineate those ideals in an articulate way so that people really can understand it and and kind of glom onto it. I think that's like definitely one of the necessary characters. You need somebody that can do some of the logistical planning for that rebellion.
0: I was going to say, writing a rebellion is not... Unlike writing a heist, except <laughs> what they're heisting is the Empire. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Cause you need you need your crew. It might be a big crew, but it's a whole crew to, to like be sneaky and do the things that need to be done to, to achieve the goals. And you regardless of if the goals are steal a necklace or if it's toppled the empire it's still essentially the same process in ter- especially in terms of how you're casting your characters when you're when you're writing it
1: that reminds me of um Mistborn i don't know if you have read that basically the first novel is kind of like a heist novel taking the empire's treasury and collapsing the economy <laughs> so it's kind of it is it, it, i mean it is a rebellion and a heist at the same time
2: <laughs> Well, you know, Andrea, you mentioned logistics, and I feel like one person or group of people or network of people that you might need is the purse. Where is the money coming from? Like, how are you funding this? Like, I I kind of feel like that's that's the spot that I could probably, like, light a giant pyre of word count of like writing all kinds of stuff that like no one wants to read this Rowena they want to get to the big battle scene and I'm like yes but how many pounds of gunpowder are we getting from which factories in which foreign country that have illicitly agreed to support us how are the supply lines (laughs) working right and if you have supply lines then the evil empire is going to want to interrupt them and they have the capability to do so so how do you prevent that from happening So, you know, and you say no one wants
0: to read that, Rowena, (laughs) but that is 100 percent my jam.
2: (laughs) Well, then you will enjoy book three of the Unraveled Kingdom because we spend quite a bit of time (laughs) on securing supply lines and suppliers for a rebellion. But but yeah, and I mean, those people have to be potentially skilled negotiators, potentially smugglers, potentially international diplomats, because when you start talking rebellion, you know, who else is looking at this empire thinking, yes, I would like them to topple too. Your neighbors maybe might be interested in what's happening politically with someone who's been either belligerent with them or an ally to them. So I think that you can also have room in your crew for the kind of international diplomat who's turning larger cogs and wheels at a world-level viewpoint.
1: I do think that's where the fall of an empire can get really complicated because if you have all these disparate interests that want the empire to fall for different reasons then you know what happens when they've actually succeeded like what who is getting what out of this basically who's going to be creating the new government I mean as soon as you get foreign interests involved I think that that's going to make things more
2: complicated Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that it can also, where are you going to go after after the rebellion succeeds? And I think that that lays the groundwork for what, what does afterward look like? To what degree is this still this kind of internal ideal of we want a country that looks like this? And to what degree is it we're beholden to other people or other people are very capable of just swooping in and mopping up and taking over?
0: I was going to say, or are we just going to make a thing that's exactly like the thing we just overthrew, except now we're in charge. (laughs) The different (laughs)
1: leader. Yeah. (laughs) Everything's And that's all we
0: really wanted. We weren't so much about the injustice, just so much the injustice to me. (laughs) 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 But to a degree, like, I want to see more of stories that are like, okay, now that we've won, now what? And I, because I think that's, a lot of times the more interesting story of like when you rebuild, what do you rebuild and who decides how you rebuild, what you rebuild. Like that's, that, that's a lot of the fun nitty gritty as well though.
1: Right. Because if you've taken everything apart and you've defeated this empire, you're basically leaving this whole structure in shambles. So what do you do after that? I mean, that I think is a really interesting question.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that we often, want the story of like the big revolution but then we skip over the part where everyone's sweating in 90 degrees in constitution hall trying to hammer out a government (laughs) (laughs) and it was that was important to me to include so that you know that's something I, i considered when i was writing the third book and i didn't want to drag my reader through a painful process of sweating through 90 degrees in constitution hall but like you have to recognize that it's there and that that's something that you know if you don't have that you don't really have an ending you just kind of have a vacuum
0: like it's it's one thing to be like yay we won and like have the have the party with the ewoks but then what does we (laughs) won look like and like it's easy to end on that upbeat moment but but there is always going to be the messy stuff afterwards and i think the messy stuff can be the more interesting stuff like you're going to have that sweating out of constitution scene and who gets to be in the sweaty room is a huge question and <laughs> the
1: sweaty, room where it, it, the sweaty, the sweaty room. room where it happens like
0: who gets <laughs> to be in that room to make those choices and i think that's that can be as dramatic and engaging of a story as anything and and i think well, and- i think we need to see more of that story sometimes. I
2: agree and especially because if you you have a rebellion and in order to get enough people together to stand up against a very large entity you've probably brought together people with disparate viewpoints. You probably have people who are you know, we all are united in a common enemy but our individual viewpoints and what we really want to see come out of this, like there's some variance there. And I think that that it's going to get messy afterward because you're going to have to sort out, well, okay, we accomplished our goal. Now we're not actually all in agreement about everything anymore. We're going to have to hash this out.
0: On top of that, you can play with the idea that there was a reason the Empire existed in the first place. And by tearing it down, you've now opened the door for whatever reason that was to come swarming back in. Um, I'm thinking specifically of... uh, Brian McClellan's the the first book is the Promise of Blood. Literally starts with the the rebellion having won, and they've you know killed off all the kings and everything, and they're like, okay, now we're gonna start to rebuild the government, but it's called the Promise of Blood because there was actually, there actually was a divine right of kings that the gods were like, oh no, there has to be somebody of this bloodline (laughs) on the throne. Oh, there's nobody of that (laughs) bloodline left alive. (laughs) Then the evil gods are coming back. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so in this case, the propaganda was true.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the propaganda was true. That's that's a fun thing you can play with, and you can play with the idea of propaganda existing within the empire and what the you know what what are they telling the people who aren't rebelling, and what's the what's the story, what's the point of view that you're giving in that? Because there, the difference between a plucky rebellion and evil terrorists is just whose point of view you're writing from.
1: Right, there's a whole subreddit, I don't know if you've seen it, called The Empire Did Nothing Wrong for (laughs) Star Wars, where it basically (laughs) talks about how they are terrorists and how they killed a lot of good people on the Death Star, stuff like that.
0: (laughs) There were perfectly innocent contractors working on rebuilding the second Death Star.
1: (laughs) My dad was a janitor on the Death Star. Yeah. I do think a lot about that kind of stuff, too, actually. And that's something that I address in um, my books is, um, you know, what does the rebellion have to do to actually overthrow the empire? And what kind of scars does that leave behind? Like, who's damaged by that? Because when you have these two forces going up against each other, there's always going to be collateral damage.
2: No, exactly. And I think that Often you can really strongly pit these are the ideals that we are fighting for versus this is the pragmatism of what this looks like in action, and I I feel like reform is not played with enough in fantasy, um, probably because again it's the boring stuff that no one really wants to read. But I I attempted in book two to like play a little bit with the idea of like what if there are people who really just want reform like we. We, we don't want to go down the revolution road because that's a lot of dead people. So what if we go legislative reform? And it's interesting because we don't talk about it much, but major changes happen in government through just legislative reform, too. So... Um, Like you look at at Britain over the course of the 19th century and they it's like it's almost as though they were very carefully avoiding riot and rebellion by constantly passing, ever increasing um, and really only pertaining to, you know, Great Britain's mainland island, not to the colonies, but um, just continually addressing these grievances that if left unaddressed could have led to, you know, much more Violent action, but instead in piecemeal, slow, over the course of a century format, you see major changes occurring. I don't know if anyone wants to write a book about that, but well, there's just awareness that it happens,
1: it doesn't happen (laughs) fast
2: enough for some people, I think, (laughs) right? But I think that acknowledgement that it's there, you know, it's like,
0: well, and there's the people who are just gonna want the rebellion. Because, because they think that they're not going to be the ones who pay the cost. Like it's easy to, it's easy to foment rebellion and be the one like just printing pamphlets and making speeches. And now you go fight, and you go take down the empire. It's like oh, they got killed, but they were the sacrifice we needed. To...
2: <laughs> Isn't the famous Thomas Jefferson quote that the tree of liberty must be watered with the blood of rebellion? That he said this right after the Whiskey Rebellion, and like he was in France at the time. like like, well it wasn't your blood dude so
0: (laughs) it's very important that other people bleed for this cause (laughs) and you know we're seeing that now it's it's like oh we need to we need to save the economy and so some will die
2: (laughs) but that's a sacrifice some of you may die but that's a sacrifice (laughs) i'm willing to make (laughs) (laughs) obviously. Yes, Shrek, the, the great bastion of <laughs> Western culture. It's very prescient, you know? Yes. You know, now that I think about it, I, I think that those elements of Shrek kind of do have a good tie in to fantasy empire and creating an image of empire. That there's so much of the beginning of the first movie that's about creating an image and about, um, you know, having a leader who projects a certain image and eliminating anything from an empire that does not feed into that image that you want to create. And I think that especially when you talk about colonialism and settler colonialism, like that's, that plays out historically that the idea of creating a particular brand for your empire and then enforcing it is something that, you know, Shrek got deep there. (laughs) That was it was well, yeah.
1: a lot deeper than I expected, actually. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way.
0: But I mean, certainly that's how much of what colonialism is is look at this wonderful land that we can now take, and the fact that there's already people there is just a minor inconvenience that, that you know will be will be settled with you know sooner or later. But you know, but what's important is that we the empire. Now have this wonderful new land that we can take and and utilize its resources, however we fee- see fit because we know best. Yes, yeah, I'm I, I'm playing a lot with those tropes in in my book, being the one that I'm currently writing because it, it is about you know a a country that's just not only been colonized but been multiply colonized. Like one one nation comes and colonizes it and then pulls away, and then other people are like oh so we can colonize it now. And the people who are, who are indigenously from there are like, we kind of live here. Can, can you not, can you, can you, can we stop being the battleground of your wars, please? And then they're like, oh, this, this war torn country that's been so destroyed now that the wars are over, we need to rebuild it so that they can be the country that they deserve to be. And it's, and they're like wait no <laughs> that's not right either so I've been having a lot of fun with that with that book and and playing with the idea of like what the rebellion or the revolution is and and what that looks like
2: I think that's a really astute point though Marshall because when we talk about sort of the, the maneuverings of Empire we often are talking about empires battling each other but then what are they fighting over and it's often like you know, someone's backyard. And I think it's kind of funny how we, you know, like, for example, in the US, we call the Seven Years War, like our little corner of it is the French and Indian War. But that was part of a much larger, like, let's have a giant worldwide fight about, you know, what land we England and we France get to claim. And it's it's kind of like swept under the rug that it's like, well, but that's I'm here. What? You know, that a lot of indigenous <laughs> people, you know, kind of get erased from that story, except to get kind of tagged on to the name French and Indian War.
0: I've been enjoying playing with not only the idea of like who's worth rebelling against and like what the means of control are, be it propaganda or uh, I've, since this one is rather than being in a traditional fantasy world is it is more of a diesel punk world i've been playing with using the radio and then the radio is also how the rebellion gets organized because there's this mysterious figure who can hack into into the radio signals and be like okay meet at this place and send out send out the messages for the for the rebels to to congregate under and so that gives you that charismatic leader that that they'll follow but again there's a lot of mystery behind like okay who's actually giving these orders and What's that all about? So I've been having a lot of fun with this book. It's been a fun one to do. I've been enjoying it. That's The Velocity of Revolution coming out February 2021.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So one thing I was thinking about too, even as we're kind of probably coming to the end of the episode, that anything big enough to have a lot of control in some ways can become an empire. Um, So kind of grappling with that um, within fantasy and sci-fi worlds. And have you guys watched um, Picard? Yes, the...
0: Yes. And
2: I think it was really interesting how that dug into the extent to which the Federation, which is always portrayed as a you know pretty positive and benevolent force, had a kind of misuse of power and a dark side to it, and that anything that's that big, at some point, it's going to come up against questions that force answers that are not necessarily in keeping with whatever ethics they started with. And I thought that that was a really interesting play to do. And I know that a lot of, of, of folks didn't necessarily like going down that road because it's uncomfortable, but, um, but I liked it. I enjoyed kind of digging into that question a little bit. Right, because I think, as, yeah, as soon as
1: you have something that big, somebody can come in and misuse it in some way
0: but also there's a question like the explicit questions there when something is that big what responsibilities does it have because and if it doesn't if it doesn't even if it's benevolent if it doesn't live up to those ideals and those responsibilities then what are the consequences of doing that like you don't necessarily have to have an evil empire for there to be a rebellion it can be a good benevolent quote-unquote empire that simply didn't do right by like one small section and that's where the source of the rebellion is not that you know we're being we're being you know murdered and oppressed but like we're not getting everything we wanted so we might as well rebel and again there you get there you get that opportunities that you have with just using point of view within your story of what's the difference between plucky rebels and evil terrorists besides point of view.
1: That's been something that I've been having a lot of fun playing with too, is that, is it possible to make everybody happy? And it's really not possible to do that. (laughs) So what's the alternative? What is the best alternative? If you are, you know, somebody who is benevolent and you are trying to do your best in this empire, what can you do to make people happy? Because you're not going to be able to make everybody happy. So what can you do to kind of, I guess, just reduce suffering?
0: How, how can, and that becomes again, you know, getting to the nitty gritty of, of governance of like what, and that's the thing you can play with. Like once your rebellion wins and they have to build a new empire, or build whatever government they think is right, then they, then they have to deal with the real politic of, oh, now that we're in charge, it's a lot messier than we expected it to be. And how do we, how do we handle that when and it turns out we're not going to be any better at it because it, <laughs> it's a lot messier than we thought it was going to be?
2: When you can play, too, with the idea of not necessarily wanting to outright rebel against and overturn a government, but hold a government accountable. And I think that you can have some fun playing with that. I don't know how many stories there are that I can think about of the top of my head that, that do that. But that could be a fun thing to play with in fantasy world is how do you hold a government that has particular ethics and has particular you know, promises that they have either explicitly or implicitly made to a people, how do you hold them accountable? And I think that you can, you can play with that to some degree. So I I want to put Andrea on the spot before we end the episode and you've given us a little taste of uh, the, um, an incredibly cool empire that you've built. Would you like give us just a couple of fun world building details from how you created that empire and, Something about the structure, or or the anything that you want to tell us.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I see a couple of things. Um, so one because we is...
2: love an archipelago.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, it is an archipelago. Love an archipelago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one is that there is definitely um, a reason or an alleged reason behind the creation of the empire. And um, that was because there were these immensely powerful beings that were basically at war with each other. And I know we talked about this during this episode, where when you have these um, powers clashing with one another, there's going to be people caught in between. So basically all these mere mortals were caught in between, and somehow they were able to overthrow all of these very powerful magical beings. And allegedly, the empire right now is the only thing that's keeping them from coming back. So that's like a little world building detail on how this empire became created. Another thing as to the structure, so the emperor has these constructs which he basically uses to uh, run his government. So he has like several tiers of constructs, like there's the first tier of constructs and these are the really complicated ones. So with these uh, bone shards that he takes from people, he basically writes commands on them and he inserts them into these created beings that he's put together from all these different parts of animals. And that allows him to kind of program them to do what he wants. So his first tier constructs are these very complex constructs. There's like a construct of trade, a construct of war, um, a construct of bureaucracy, and a construct of spies. And these constructs beneath them have another tier of constructs that actually answer to that top tier. So it goes down like that, I think, to uh, three tiers of constructs. So that's basically how he runs his country he does have some servants but he also has serious trust issues so he really (laughs) mostly just trusts the constructs which which he's created you
2: know i feel like an emperor having trust issues is makes a lot of sense that's very realistic and i love that it's kind of like a magical bureaucracy because you know it's i love that like there's something that makes a lot of sense to any of us who've ever been to the DMV, that that would be like part of any large, large construct of, of government would involve these tiers and layers. I love it.
1: You start talking to the third tier. and then
2: <laughs> <laughs> I need to speak to your manager. <laughs>
1: I need to get to the next tier.
0: Well, one of the things I love that you play with in that is how your smuggler character—he knows. Like when you're dealing with a simple construct, all you have to do is just confuse it enough to work around his programming, and then just yeah. walk past, and then it's fine. <laughs> like he knows. Like he knows the hacking tricks to get around. No, this uniform—it's not stolen. I just—it's just somebody else's. It's just another shirt that I was wearing. But I'm really an officer, and it's fine. You don't have to question anything. I gotta go. Over there right now thanks (laughs) right
1: if you can get their their commands to conflict with one another then you basically (laughs) short circuit them
0: i love how your magic was kind of like programming and hacking and your other main character when she's trying to figure out how to do the problems like if I just change this one word on this one thing then I can make everything else work exactly the way I want I love that that was a lot of fun with the way you did that with you with your magic system
1: well thank you I I talked to um my husband a little bit because he's actually a programmer (laughs) like with this
2: kind of thing like could that make sense in this context excellent I love it Well, I think that we are at the end of our time together, Um, but we selfishly, when we have a guest, ask them to give us a gift for the world that we are building in our podcast. Andrea, so if you would like to bestow upon us any little nugget of world building, any little gem that we have to then insert into our world in some way, um, we are so excited to hear it.
1: Okay, so I actually thought about this probably way too much (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Uh, So, I'm actually um, from Canada originally, and um, people there, you know, stereotypically are very polite. So, I was thinking about a culture with an elaborate apology ritual whereby you might be able to escape punishment by um, having this very intricate apology that's followed up by like five very flowery compliments to the aggrieved party. And that would be judged by the aggrieved party as well as you know, some of the, your peers. And they would decide whether or not it was acceptable depending on one, the sincerity, and
2: two, how intricate the compliments were. I absolutely love this as someone who in college voted most likely to apologize for receiving this award. I love it. <laughs>
0: Is it wrong that I can see that so well right
2: now? Yes. Um, Let's just apologize for that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, that is fantastic. I love it. I love it. it. Well, this has been absolutely delightful. I hope that you've had fun with us, Andrea. We've had such a great time having you with us. And listeners, look out for Bone Shard Darter out this fall. Um, I'm sure that we'll be talking about it more. And... um, Yeah. It's been great talking to you, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. I really
1: appreciate it.
0: Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of world building for masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode goes up on June 10th and we'll be talking about queer world building with K.A. Dor, the author of the perfect assassin. We're li- really looking forward to this discussion. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please take a minute to tell a friend shout about us on the internet or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the world you're making and help us all build till it hurts.